0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer.
1: And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Friday, November 2nd. We're days away from the midterm elections in the United States. It's the first major national election cycle since the 2016 presidential elections. These elections are, of course, critically important to the country's future. Democrats have a chance to take back the House, new governors will be elected, and so on. But they're also important as a test of our election system, and in particular, the capacity of major tech platforms to fix the problems of misinformation and foreign interference that so muddled the 2016 elections.
0: That's right. So today we're going to have a special episode of If Then, all about the midterm elections and the role of Silicon Valley and online media and our beloved democratic process. We're going to start with a roundtable with two extra tech journalists, as if anybody wanted more tech journalists, Kevin Roos from The New York Times and Paris Martineau of Wired, who have been reporting on issues of online speech, misinformation and election interference this year.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to have both of them here with us in the studio, and then we'll have an interview with one of the country's top experts on election security and voting systems. He's the former White House Deputy Chief Technology Officer, Ed Felton. We'll talk to him about the problems that could rear their heads this cycle, namely with the very outdated tech that many of us are forced to use to cast our ballots. Some of the voting machines we rely on are well over a decade old. Some don't have a paper trail. Some seem to be very vulnerable to hacking. But here we are.
0: And we'll end our show with a very special Don't Close My Tabs edition, where we take a look at the best way to watch the results as they come in Tuesday night online. Today we're joined by Paris Martineau, a staff writer at Wired, covering tech, online extremism, and social media. Welcome, Paris.
2: Hey.
1: We're also joined by Kevin Roos, a columnist for Business Day and a writer for the New York Times Magazine. Kevin's column, The Shift, examines the intersection of technology, business, and culture, which, as far as I can tell, just means you get to cover all the weirdest and most interesting stories in the tech world. Welcome, Kevin.
3: Thank you for having me, big fan of the podcast.
0: Well, that's very nice of you to say. <laughs> um, so roundtables are super weird because we usually like to interview people, and it's like people on either side of the net here. But uh, but we'll just have a conversation this time. And I actually want to start with disinformation, which is a topic I know we're all really fascinated by. And I think it'd be good to kind of start with some examples to illustrate the types of things we're talking about. And then we can move into some larger questions. There's definitely been some disinformation circulating around social media that has to do with the election. But there's also been disinformation circulating on social media that doesn't have to do with the election, right? Like, But has been happening kind of around the proximity of the election because the elections are happening on Tuesday. And I know that you, Kevin, have been following uh, disinformation around the caravan quite closely. And I'm curious if you could kind of give us some examples about the disinformation you've seen and also how that could affect the election. I know I've seen it kind of siphon into some political messaging.
3: Yeah, so I think we've sort of had enough of these events now that sort of take over the news cycle and inspire a wave of disinformation that we kind of know... The pattern. So, for example, as you said, this happened with the caravan. The, the minute that, you know, sort of big news stories started breaking on this caravan, you started to see um, things going sort of viral on social media. And some of them had sort of doctored or mislabeled images. So they would, you know, take an image from... Uh, you know, 2012 uh, street protest and with, with you know, a policeman with his face bloody from from, you know, being hit with a rock or something. And they would say, look, the, the caravan is is, you know, attacking policemen. And um, even though the, the images had nothing to do with the caravan. So we saw a number of instances like that. We also saw a big wave around the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Right. Um, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, was sort of turned into this, um, character in right-wing social internet spaces and a lot of fake and mislabeled images, a lot of sort of viral rumors took hold. I mean, and you could just sort of go to any large conservative Facebook group or Twitter, you know, profile, and you would see just examples of blatantly false and misleading information. Um, and- all of this is sort of produced by what from what i can tell like a a pretty tight group of of people um, and sometimes they want to sort of deliberately sow confusion and sometimes it's just shared by sort of innocent randos who see it on their facebook feed and agree with it and don't really feel like fact checking it um so i've been doing a lot on that stuff but that's not as you said, that's not specifically election related, but it does play into these broader themes that I think then do influence how people vote.
1: Right, because the mig- the migrant caravan bearing down on us is supposed to scare people in- into getting out to the polls. Paris, I know you've done work also on the sources of online misinformation and amplification of these false stories. What have you found about who's sharing these, who's coming up with them?
2: Yeah, Um More often than not, these sort of stories seem to come from the usual suspects of places, be it 4chan or 8chan, um, Reddit, Gab, before it was shut down. It'll often start with Maybe one person posting a specific meme or making a particular claim, which then ends up being repeated on someone's YouTube channel or in a Facebook group, which eventually will then make it to um, larger, more open spheres like a a subreddit or on Twitter. And then from there, it'll kind of um, take off. Uh, I guess another good example of kind of this phenomenon is – in relation to the recent totally bunk allegations made by um, Jacob Wall and co about Mueller, Gateway Pundit had written an article on these totally false allegations. And you could kind of track in the minutes and hours afterwards on CrowdTangle, um, how these things started to spread. And at first, you saw um, a bunch of uh, power users on Twitter in the Extreme right sphere kind of pick up the Gateway Pundit article and the allegations. And then it proliferated to more mainstream users on Twitter. Then it went to Reddit and kind of climbed up um, on the. Uh Like popular subreddits like the Donut and so on. Right.
0: So like when I see – so these articles, they get written on like, you know, Gateway Pundit. And then I see these kinds of websites that get started just for the purpose of Facebook pages having somewhere to send traffic to. Mm -hmm. uh, Then take that Gateway Pundit article that was like premised on something that – Percolated somewhere in the cobwebby corners of the internet, whether it's usually not Gab. Usually I see it like on Discord or I see it on the Chan somewhere. Um, and then they like just block quote that Gateway Pundit article, and that becomes the kind of like clickbait. Uh, place or the kind of click farm that uh, it goes to. And then we see this stuff proliferate wildly. One example that I want to say about um, how misinformation about the caravan has been kind of siphoned into the campaigns or the campaigns around the the upcoming elections is we saw stuff like from the Republican Senate candidate in Maine, uh, Eric Brakey, I guess is how you say it. Um, He spread the theory that there were ISIS operatives in the refugee caravan. He was like tweeting about that. Uh, a member of Congress who's up for re-election in Florida shared a video that the refugee caravan um, claimed it might show people that were getting paid by George Soros. And so, like, I've seen a lot of, uh, like, fixation on the caravan, on, on Nancy Pelosi, um, on Soros, stuff that's not necessarily true, uh, that is kind of getting – that's not necessarily about the election either, getting kind of – and and to be clear, these people in their House districts and and stuff have – they should not be running on the caravan. Like that is not should not be an election issue. But it's something that they're that they're pulling into their ads. They're saying on Twitter.
3: Well, that's something that I've sort of observed this cycle that I think is new and really interesting is there used to be this adage that, you know, all politics is local. Yeah. You know, if you were running for city council somewhere in Kansas, you wouldn't campaign on federal health care law because that's not your job. You don't have anything to do with that. But as I've been sort of researching and, and looking into social media this cycle, you see all these fascinating sort of local campaigns running on national issues. So, like, I did a big story about. Um, Facebook ads and and sort of how candidates for small offices, very, very down ballot offices are advertising on Facebook. And you see people running for school board who are talking about ISIS caravans. You see people who are running for city council and they're running on the wall and MS-13 or, you know, Colin Kaepernick, or they're running on, you know, um, Republican, you know, uh, tax plan. And it just, it makes no sense logically, right? There's no, but it's sort of th- what happens when you put, when you sort of shove all politics through this algorithmically sorted feed right? that you have to kind of aim for the broadest issues.
2: Yeah. The only way that they're going to be able to get their message seen by the most number of people is if they speak on these specific divisive topics that everyone is clicking on that everyone wants to hear about. So there's like the, the gutting of the local newsroom, though, is part of this too, is that there's just yeah. not as
0: much local coverage, but uh, it's also the this is what these platforms were made to do. Like the democratizing nature of these platforms gives everyone a voice, and then yeah, the only way to to kind of get your stuff to percolate up might be to focus on the hot button issues.
1: Well, to be fair, I mean it's not it's not just the right, right. I mean like every Democrat in the country is yeah. running against Trump, right? Oh. They're not running yeah. against their yeah. Republican opponent, and I don't I don't think that's crazy, but it does. I think it is reflective of how when you're when you're in a country with a charismatic populist leader, that leader just like it just infects everything that you can't you can't avoid them.
3: But I I think you I don't want to both sides this too much because I think you do see Democrats running on health care, running on local issues in their communities. Um, I think there's obviously a lot of anti-Trump stuff that's going to power people to to go to the polls. But um, it's really interesting. I mean, I don't think you would have seen this. Uh, you know, 10 years ago. I think it's a r- real reflection of, of the times we live in and how people are getting their information.
0: So wh- why do you think there's you've been showing on Twitter that some of the pages that have been getting um, the most uh, clicks on Facebook or that have been popularized the most are far right pages or like kind of like Republican leaning, not even far right, but just like right leaning stuff. Why is that, do you think, uh, more popular on Facebook? I have my own theories. But I'm curious what you think.
3: Um, I, well, Will is the resident expert on this stuff, but I, my, my sort of like, uh, backseat theory is that it's just, it, it's a couple things. One, it's that these far right websites are more likely to, they're, they're better at sort of creating engagement. They're, they're like, they're just better at whether find, it's finding issues with sort of salient or, or, you know, salacious details. Um, it, they're better at sort of playing to people's, you know, the bottom of their brainstem sort of raw emotions. But I also think it just reflects Facebook's user base. I mean, mm-hmm. um, if you look at who's using Facebook the most, um, their their fastest growing user base is, is people over 50. And um, you don't see that many, um, you know, young people, a lot of them have moved, migrated to Instagram or Snapchat. So the people who are left on Facebook, Using it very act actively, I would guess. Although I don't know this for sure, tend to be sort of older and more conservative.
1: Well, the, and there's also, I mean, I th- I think part of it is that liberals have the mainstream media. I mean, liberals generally trust the mainstream media. We're comfortable sharing the New York Times or or you know CNN or Mother Jones or Slate. And conservatives um, have been trained or ju- or just don't trust the mainstream media Mm -hmm. and so there's this vacuum of of information that's gonna that's gonna cater to their worldview and so i think that's one reason that you see more of the memification um and and the sort of trumped up false news on on the conservative side but paris i wanted to ask you one more question about the about the way this gets around you've written a little bit about about uh how sometimes it's bots but sometimes there's like people who act like bots to to amplify information, right? Yeah,
2: I think that the the word bot is something that I struggle with and kind of uh, – that I struggle with deciding whether or not to use because it is, yes, a good description of a specific type of action. But oftentimes when we're talking about the large groups that are kind of amplifying um, information that I've, I've particularly studied um, in the extreme right sense of it, but – oftentimes it's not a bot that is just retweeting something 400 times a day that happens to look exactly like cyborg-like activity. It's a human. In one case, um, I was tracking this network of 400 or 500 accounts that all were retweeting um, articles, links, and just tweets from a specific network um, about 500 or 600 times a day was the average number of retweets and would generally tweet in their own maybe 50 times a day. And as we looked into it more, while It's easy to call that bot like activity. The people behind it were mostly just human beings um, who sat in their phone the entire day and just retweeted the same things over and over, often from these specific groups called uh, DM Rooms, I think is the unofficial name for it. It'll be a large DM group that Sometimes you have to pay to get in too. Oh, really? Where, yeah, where people um, <laughs> I want to pay to get in one. Yeah, where people will um, essentially post an article, a link, or a tweet, and then everyone in the room is expected to retweet it. Then, so it kind of creates these networks of people who are all amplifying each other's content. What a weird privilege or like a way to get yeah. in. I mean, I've I've like definitely seen
0: various groups where you have to like um, get screened in some way before they let you in, but never money. So that's yeah, interesting. no, it
2: was interesting because it was yeah. the group that I was following was around this one account still active today called the. Bradford file which tweets like insane very ultra right-wing content and uh, essentially his dm group was full of women who were like wanted to sleep with him essentially <laughs> or who, like were, had a crush on him somehow and so oh, like gosh. he'd flirt with all of these like very old women located in florida and in turn they would retweet all of his tweets what an economy. I have not heard yeah. of that. That's fascinating. Yeah,
3: I got to get my own DM group. I don't
0: know. I know. <laughs> we're not <laughs> doing like it right, guys. If too. anybody yeah. would like to pay to join a DM group with me, just... Uh, yeah. I However
3: I much can... he, this guy charges, I'll do like a dollar less. We'll do
2: yeah, okay, he un-
0: undersell the market. You know, one thing I want to bring up, though, about uh, why right-wing content proliferates, I think Will, Will makes a good point there. I got to, uh, earlier this summer, interview a uh, trio of, of guys who run probably the one of the largest pro-Trump Facebook hubs of pages. So they control like, you know, eight pages, I think, and have, you know, millions and millions of followers total. And I, I had a really long interview with them. I don't know why they agreed to talk to me. It was very hard to find them, as I know you've experienced too, like finding these people. And I finally got them on the phone and they were like, yeah, OK, I'll talk to you. They said they feel like the country's watching two different movies that um, that, you know, people who like Trump uh, get the news. They get They get CNN. They get New York Times. mean Who don't like Trump. Oh, who don't like Trump. I'm sorry. Yeah, they get they get like kind of all this what I would consider verified fact checked reporting about all of the troubles that his administration has been having that really needs to be reported on is important. But that really turns people off who like Trump. Like it's not that they they just don't want to see bad news about someone they like. And so because of that, they've turned to either Fox News, which they can't watch all day because they have a job. Or, and Facebook. And Facebook has kind of filled the void for people that don't want to see, even if it's true, bad news about someone they like.
3: Well, and the biggest publisher on Facebook is Fox News, right? So, and so there you yeah. go. Yeah. It, it sort of replicates itself. And you, know,
0: re- and, you know, I've heard the theory before also that if you believe in something that's not necessarily based in truth you have to create a lot of media to kind of prove it's true so if you believe the earth is flat you're gonna make a lot of youtube videos to prove it's flat if you believe the earth is round you don't really need to make youtube videos to prove the earth is round
3: right well it's also just more interesting right it's more interesting <laughs> to learn a secret theory that, yes. that the world is flat than to watch a two-minute video about th- that the earth is round so these platforms that sort of prioritize and reward engagement um There's this sort of secret knowledge economy that's popped up to sort of game that.
2: Yeah. And this has been that's been kind of my thinking when I've been studying like the QAnon conspiracy and a lot of these other groups is that it kind of gives people this sense of purpose and self-worth to believe in this because then they're the only people who truly know what's going on. They believe that they possess some like sort of special information the rest of us are missing out on. They're the only ones that understand the way the world is really operating. And so they kind of encase themselves in this bubble um and just kind of dive deeper and deeper into it.
1: So here's a question that I've been I've been trying to grapple with. We know that in the 2016 election a lot of the misinformation was originating in Russia. But we didn't know that at the time of the election. That came out later. So in the 2018 midterm cycle, I haven't seen that much reporting or evidence of Russian interference or interference from other countries. But I'm wondering, does that mean that it's not happening? Or is it just that, again, we won't know until later that it's happening?
0: Well, I will say that Facebook has gotten a lot faster about telling us when it has happened. So if it has happened lately, it seems like they tell us within the week. Um, but I don't know. Maybe, Kevin, you have thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, I have a couple thoughts. One is that I think there's not as much need. for. I mean, in 2016, the playbook, you know, that Russia came up with was about stoking division. Um, and, like, we sort of got that now. Like, we're sort of really good <laughs> at that. Mission accomplished. They, yeah, yeah. The
0: polarization exists now, and they don't need to wedge that. Right, okay, exactly. Yeah. So,
3: like, kind of mission accomplished on that one. And then I think we're also seeing, um, y- you know, different forms of disinformation. So a lot of it's not happening out in the open. It might be happening over, you know. Text messaging platforms. It might be happening in sort of more closed spaces um, where it's harder for us to see. Um, like we saw that in Brazil just recently with their election, there was a ton of misinformation. Most of it, it seems like, was flowing through WhatsApp. Um, and so I think that'll be sort of something to watch.
0: So we might have the foreign interference actually might be seeding the disinformation
2: in some of the forums where they work to kind of strategically
0: percolate it.
2: Yeah. And I think one avenue that people are not talking about enough, which I'm not sure how we'd even begin to counter, is Facebook groups, which are huge, and especially in, I suppose, right-wing circles. There's no one really policing them because the majority of Facebook's, um, the majority of the ways Facebook goes about policing sort of fake news and things like that relies on reports or some sort of interaction from the people that see the content in Facebook. And within these groups, everyone wants generally to see this sort of content be it like fake stories about the caravan or things like that. And so there's no one to report it. And then it percolates and ends up on a platform like Twitter or Facebook generally. And so, you know, um, just to change
0: topics, another thing I wanted to talk about while I have you guys here is, for instance, the rise of Bolsonaro and Trump, these people who we wouldn't have seen gain so much popularity if it weren't for the democratizing effect of social media, right? Which is something we used to celebrate so much. And now it's kind of given a platform uh, to people that typically wouldn't get past kind of the gatekeepers, the traditional gatekeepers of media, the, you know, our editors, for example. Um, and so I'm curious what you guys think about, about that, about kind of like Facebook kind of giving people the opportunity to organically or inorganically, if they're using uh, disinformation campaigns, uh, rise. Well, the the way
3: I've sort of been thinking about this, because I I think it's, you know, to say that Trump is sort of purposefully engineering or Bolsonaro is purposefully engineering some campaigns that are, you know, tailor made to the realities of social media amplification. I, I don't think they're thinking about it in that sophisticated a way. I think they're just really good at getting attention. And, you know, Trump has been in the business of getting attention since way before the internet, since way before Facebook, he had a TV show. He was a regular sort of personality in the media. Um, Bolsonaro has also been trying to sort of get attention and amplify his his voice for a long time. And to a certain extent, that plus shamelessness gets you a long way in in the media environment. And, you know, when Trump had a TV show, when he was on The Apprentice, he had, you know, an hour a week and he could... He could drive big ratings within that hour, but then the show ended and something else came on. What's happening now is essentially online. There is no one hour time limit. Like he can just, if he can keep the attention on himself, he can have 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, So he's programming in a way that I think is, is really, um, is really useful for him.
1: The way you put that makes sense to me because, you know, we used to have a media environment where they were these big corporate gatekeepers that decided what news we would all see. And so they would not give attention to somebody like Trump. Now we have uh, an information environment where in t- attention is the currency. Like on Facebook, if it gets attention, then that's what goes to the top of the feed. So that makes sense that that attention seekers would be thriving in that kind of environment. But one thing that, that the Brazil election, a question that it raised for me is, I used to blame a lot of this on Facebook's algorithm because they've written this software to to optimize for stuff that's divisive, that like... Engaging. Yeah, stuff that appeals to your biases, that gets you an emotional response. But in Brazil, a lot of the problem was on WhatsApp. And there's no, there's no equivalent algorithm on WhatsApp, and yet we still see huge problems with misinformation. So I'm wondering, like, is it... Was it really Facebook's algorithm or, or was there something deeper all along about... I don't know about the Internet or, or, you know, is it is it specific to WhatsApp? Uh, Could there be even be a platform that would not lead to uh, greater polarization and and foster misinformation and that kind of thing? So it's
0: just sharing. I think people just like to share like aggro negative stuff. You know, they're like, oh, here's some bad news you might think is interesting. And maybe it's not. uh, Yeah, maybe it's not just people who can game it, but it's also that people like to just share bad news. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I think that a lot of the issues we see within Facebook's algorithm like, reflect in a way the issues with our society and the way we kind of share news and uh, consume content just generally as people. And it, we can see that even within these kind of closed um, communities that people are sharing the same sort of polarizing, often untrue things solely because they realize that that is what gets engagement within your own community, re- whether or not – it is being amplified by some sort of algorithm.
3: One thing I'd be really interested to to see, and there probably is no way to run this sort of A-B test, but if you could see sort of, how misinformation would would work in a society that had WhatsApp, but that didn't allow people to forward messages to, you know, vast numbers of people. Because a lot of what's happening in Brazil is that a piece of misinformation will spread. You know, people have a group with, you know, a hundred of their friends and neighbors and stuff, and they'll just forward the message to that entire group. And then, you know, maybe 50 of those hundred people will forward it to other groups that they're in. So the sort of viral mechanics are there, even though the feed is not algorithmic like facebook the sort of sharing mechanism is still there and i'd be really interested to see what happens if you just if you just don't have that if, if maybe you can max out you can forward a message you know to three people and how does that change the ability of disinformation to spread
0: yeah you just don't give people as much power is that wait
1: that sounds bad
0: uh, no, well, I just think, well, broadcast is what this is about, right? It's about the ability to broadcast, you know, and should you limit that locally like, and or localize that or do you just make it as global and vast as possible? Um, and I don't know. I, I, I think localization of broadcast kind of keeps it at home and, and keeps it understandable and makes sure that it doesn't get as toxic. That doesn't seem bad to me.
1: Right. So it's, it's, it's the centralized platform with the ability to take any one person's voice and just blow it up.
0: And Yeah. And, you know, we're just touring around with ideas now. You know, one last thing, though, I wanted to talk about is Facebook's war room. Uh, do you guys think that the platforms, particularly Facebook, uh, has done a good job so far? I mean, clearly, I know with, with Brazil, it WhatsApp, which is a very big challenge, they have they were not able to rein that in, and I'm not really asking you guys to assess one of the hardest questions to assess, but I'm I'm curious what you think about what they've they've done so far. I think
3: one change is that. Uh, a lot more journalists and researchers and NGOs are paying attention to misinformation. And I think that, in turn, has forced Facebook to pay more attention more to More accountability
0: because more people are watching.
3: Right. And and in a way, they've kind of sort of outsourced a lot of that work. I mean, we still, we being journalists, still find a lot of you know things that break Facebook's rules and bring it to their attention and then they you know crack down on it. but a lot of times it's not them proactively going out and looking for it. it's them being sort of responsive to other people finding stuff on the platform, which is which is you know, to be fair, a good change they could they could say like thank you for your uh, reporting. we're not going to do anything about it. um I think they've been more responsive than they have been in the past,
2: yeah, although i I mean I don't know, I've seen a lot in my reporting or some of my colleagues reporting that Oftentimes, Facebook will have seen these sort of things that break the, their rules multiple times before, or users will have reported them, and Facebook does nothing. But it's only when a journalist or somebody with the power to call them out on a platform actually brings it to their attention that they will respond in some way.
1: And, and even then, not always, right? I mean, yeah. Paris, you wrote the, you wrote the post for Wired about how... Um, with the the ma- the pipe bomber suspect, um, he had actually been reported for making yeah. death threats on Twitter by a person who was somewhat of a media personality. Yeah, was she a, was a, on Fox, right? And, and and
2: nothing happened. Right, and then of course he, they didn't even uh, like he. She, she had reported that him to Twitter. They said nothing, did not suspend his account, and he, they only, like, corrected that, like, what, 12 hours after they found out whose account it was, um, right after they had identified the bombing suspect in the news.
1: Yeah, so I think we can probably agree that that the platforms are still pretty bad at all the things that they were bad at two years ago. They're
2: just responding to whenever they get criticism and have to do something or else face having to sit in front of Congress for a couple of hours and have a bunch of bad photos of them taken.
0: To be clear, that's not real liability, (laughs) right? Like, I mean, so much of this stems from the fact... That they don't have liability for what users post on their platform. And Mm -hmm. because of that, it's really allowed them to look the other way for, you know, 15 years. And I always bring it back to the Communications Decency Act. I'm not going to make a verdict whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it has fostered a culture amongst Internet platforms that is inactive.
1: I wonder if our listeners play section two thirty bingo at home. Just I just I think it it's fascinating.
0: <laughs> it's something I really think about a lot. I, I you know, I read a lot about the concept of liability and I think about it, it's very powerful and uh, and when it's not there it's very powerful too. So
1: no, I think you're right, though. But but I mean, it, certainly they're trying now. Like, I, I think they're trying. They're not doing a great job. They're yeah. still overwhelming. They don't want
0: to be regulated. Yeah. They don't want to be forced to do it. So they're trying to do it. Yeah.
1: And so the question to me now is just like, is the, are these problems even solvable? I mean, they admit now that it's an arms race and they're never going to fix misinformation. Um, but, but I just wonder if it's ever really going to get better or if this is where we're stuck. Does it
0: have to be an arms race? Like, will there be a future where we're, when we'll say like, oh, remember how like – Messed up 2016 and 2018 and 2020 was like you know like will we ever be able to say that's not how it's going to be anymore? You know it seems like short of just major structural changes, which might involve like some like some scaffolding of policy (laughs) that forces them to do something. I'm worried that this is just going to be a fixture of our democracy, and I don't know if social media and the way it exists now and electoral politics can really coexist in a, like, healthy way. I'm not sure.
1: There's there's a small bright spot, which is I, I covered a study, an academic study, that found there actually has been less false news and m- misinformation on Facebook in the past year, and that's compared to Twitter, which hasn't focused on stamping out misinformation. Um, Facebook has at least moved the needle somewhat. But I wanted to th- ask the last question, um, Kevin and Paris, do you think our thing is getting better or are they getting worse?
2: uh that's a great question. Uh, I don't know. I think things are at a steady state of bad and occasionally the needle moves towards, OK, that's an all like I don't know when you were just saying that um, Twitter just introduced a feature this week for people to be able to report fake news or misinformation, which is insane that it is taken until November for Twitter to add that. I mean, there are small uh, victories to be had, but they are much too late.
3: Yeah, I think of it like if you had a, you know, boat that had a huge uh, hole in the hull and, you know, it's, that's a problem, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And like adding more buckets is like a good thing. Like if you had more buckets, buckets, that'd be good. But like you still got the freaking hole in your hull and uh, at some point you got to patch that. And I think we're at the adding more buckets phase right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, again, I'll just say, I hope that there's a day in the future. Maybe this is a speculative sci-fi where we look back and say, man, that was a mess. I'm so glad it's not like that now. I don't see that day coming. I, well,
3: I, ho- I hope so. I hope like we look back at now with like our, like, you know how you look at ads from TV from like the 1950s and everyone's like smoking and, you know, on yeah. roller skates and they're like, <laughs> you know, this is the healthiest thing. I, like, I, I hope we look back at, at what's happening now in the same way that we look back at those ads.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with former White House Deputy Chief Technology Officer Ed Felton.
4: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
0: Just a quick note, we recorded our interview with Ed Felton on Tuesday, October 30th. Our guest today is Ed Felton, professor of computer science and public affairs at Princeton and the director of the Center for Information Technology Policy. Formerly, Felton served as the deputy chief technology officer at the White House under President Obama His research has largely centered around issues of government transparency and cybersecurity with a special focus on voting and election security. And he is quite well known for having hacked into many, many voting machines over the years in order to reveal how dangerously porous the technologies that we rely on to tally our votes really are. And he's testified to Congress on the issue, too. Professor Felton is also a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which works to ensure that efforts by the executive branch to protect the nation from terrorism are balanced with the need to protect privacy and civil liberties. Professor Felton, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. So you first started hacking into voting machines in the late 90s at Princeton, if if I'm correct there. And I'm curious, what were those machines and what flaws did you see then? And... I guess I want to know if you can tell us, you know, that was 20 years ago or so, um, if we're still seeing the same problems today.
4: We see a lot of the same problems today that that we've seen in the past, and mostly because the machines have not been upgraded in in many places. Um, What we found back then was really two things. First of all, that there were fundamental vulnerabilities because of the use of paperless computer systems in voting. That's a risky thing to do in itself. And then on top of that, the systems that were actually out there in the field were not very well secured. Uh, And in some places in the U.S., uh, there are new machines in use that are more secure. But in a lot of places, including my own home state of New Jersey, we're still using the same old equipment as we have for a long time.
0: I mean, you saw some of these voting machines were actually for sale on eBay back then, right? Or is that still the case?
4: It still is. Yeah. When, when a state or county switches machines or they take some out of service, they typically will sell them uh, for surplus. And so you can buy them on eBay and other places. And that's how we got a lot of the early machines that we studied.
0: And so I remember reading back in 2008, uh, one of the voting machine manufacturers actually threatened to take legal action against you for studying and testing the security of these machines. Has your research led to a hardening of these voting machine technologies?
4: I think the long-term impact of the research that my team and others have done has been more to get uh, states and counties to switch to more secure systems. But that happens very slowly. We still have something like 30% of U.S. voters are voting on systems that uh, that are suspect by design.
1: So before we get into the problems with the current machines, I wanted to ask what's maybe a really basic question. But what does it look like to hack a voting machine? I mean, is it, is it a person standing there at the ballot box in front of the machine and doing stuff to it? Is it that they're tapping in somehow uh, remotely? Um, you know, when you hack them, what does it look like? And what might it look like if this were to actually happen in an election?
4: When we study a machine, we first kind of take it apart in our lab to understand everything about it. And then we try to figure out... Uh, how someone might be able to, uh, to to modify the machine or the results. And that typically involves uh, just changing the software on the machine, literally just installing a software upgrade that or update that it wasn't authorized by the manufacturer that causes the machine to do something else. Uh, and so usually it involves either having hands on the machine, physically hands on somewhere. Um, it might be in the uh, warehouse where the machine is kept. Um, or it might also involve if the machine has some kind of networking or wireless capability um, uh, breaking into it that way.
0: Have we seen instances of hacked voting machines? I know, and we'll get into this shortly, that there's been problems with the technology having bugs or not working it right. But but have we seen instances of hacking?
4: We don't have confirmed cases in the U.S. of, um, of hacking that affected elections. Uh, it, it, you know, as you said, we've seen... Um, We've seen a f- quite a few examples of errors or uh, things that shouldn't have happened happening, um, but we haven't seen uh, those sorts of errors. But then again, part of the problem is that uh, it would be hard to tell because the vulnerable machines don't keep the kind of records you would need to keep in order to be sure that there wasn't a problem.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask: Is it is it just that we don't know, and it probably has happened, or are there actual barriers that have that have prevented this from happening? I mean, if it hasn't happened, what's the obstacle that that has kept it from happening? You think?
4: I think the factor that has kept it from happening is that the people who have the capability of doing it have not chosen to, to manipulate an election. Uh, we knew in 2016, we've known before that there are people who have the capabilities to, uh, to mess with, the, with voting machines, but they just haven't so far. Uh, and, you know, we, we can count ourselves lucky, but we shouldn't stay in this position where we have to rely on the bad guys choosing not to act.
0: Yeah, that's quite unsettling. We know earlier this month, Texas officials charged that votes that intended to go to Beto or work uh, instead went to Ted Cruz and the voting machines, which are the e machines made by Hart InterCivic, had switched the votes. Um, and so I also remember reading with this story that those voting machines were running on something like 2007 software Uh, Is this something that voters should should really worry about? I mean, that is such ancient software.
4: Uh, There are a lot of voting machines, electronic voting machines that run old software. That's true in Texas. That's true in Georgia. It's true in New Jersey and a bunch of other places. Um, Typically, these machines don't have their software updated very often. And that has something to do with sort of cost and maintenance issues and also that uh, software updates uh, in some cases need to be certified through a sort of slow and expensive process, which pushes people away from actually doing that. So all the more reason not to have to rely on the software being correct.
1: And what was the issue in Texas? I couldn't get full clarity on that. Do you have a good understanding? Do you think of the the vote flipping or vote switching bug?
4: As I understand it, it's a sort of user usability problem, a user interface problem. So this particular voting machine has a strange interface, where there's a sort of wheel that the voter can turn and then a button to press to, make, uh, to record their choice. Uh, and apparently, if users go faster than the machine anticipates, you can get unexpected results. And this kind of points to another issue that folks have had with electronic voting machines, was is often there are usability problems that cause, uh, that cause more voters to uh, leave the voting booth not having cast the vote they thought they did. Than, than we really want.
1: And that's the argument, of course, for the, for the paper trail, right?
4: A paper trail helps. Um, really, for electronic voting, a paper trail is the most important safeguard, because it creates another record of the vote, which the voters saw. And the thing about paper is that it's less surprising in how it behaves than computers can be. Uh, you kind of know that if you take a pencil or pen and make a mark on a piece of paper and put that paper in a box... And then you come back later and look at the paper again, it will still have the same marks on it. And that's not necessarily the case with a computer, right? If a computer records some information uh, and then you come back later, it might have changed. Uh, that's just the nature of what, how computers work. So paper trail is the, most important, uh, is, is the most important safeguard we need against all of these sorts of problems, whether it be malice or error or usability. Paper trail helps with all of those.
1: Right, so my state, Delaware, just recently approved new voting machines. They do have a paper trail, but should we be thinking about going all the way back to just pure paper? I mean, the whole push toward voting machines really gained momentum after Bush v. Gore with the hanging chads in Florida. Paper obviously has its own problems. What's the you know what's the optimal solution? Do you think at this point?
4: Uh, from my standpoint, I think the best um, system is one that keeps both paper and electronic records. You have a paper record, which the voter saw and verified, and you also have an electronic record. And the benefit of having both is that each one has its pros and cons from the standpoint of reliability or security. But if you keep them both and then check them for consistency against each other, then you're in the best position to detect a problem if there is one. Uh, And so a good example of a system like that is an optical scan system where the voter marks a paper ballot, and then the voter feeds that into a scanner in the polling place, and the scanner keeps an electronic record. So, best practice number one in the polling place is to have a voter verified paper record along with an electronic record. And then, best practice number two is to actually compare them by a statistical audit after the election.
0: So, I'm curious are there federal standards that voting machine companies have to adhere to in any way? You know, because it seems like. It's something that they should work out already that, you know, they shouldn't be switching votes or, or that these usability issues, these kind of you can think of them almost as usability bugs, because if if the system can't handle all of the information that's coming in at it at once, then it, then it's not working right. Uh, I'm I'm curious, are there any standards that, that these companies have to adhere to across the country so that way they can be used in elections?
4: There are federal standards, um, and most of the states have voluntarily adopted the federal standards. But those standards are old and they're not very comprehensive. Uh, and some of the machines may have been certified against the standard that existed when the machine was new. Uh, and so those could be standards that are quite old and might not have much of anything about security or usability in them. Uh, back in the day, the standards were really written, um, sort of thinking about the old-fashioned big metal lever machines. And the federal government and that, the whole policy process is still kind of catching up in terms of standards.
0: And so you you worked at the the White House uh, under the Obama administration. I'm curious, why wasn't there more progress on this issue then? Or when will we see progress on this issue? I know it was only in January 2017 that election systems were designated designated as critical infrastructure, like the electrical grid is, that would get kind of uh, federal protections.
4: Sure. One of the core challenges here is that elections are really run by the states and counties, as opposed to being run or managed in a centralized way. The federal government can set standards, but at the end of the day, it's your county clerk probably who uh, is the most important person for the operation of uh, voting in the place where you vote. Um, And because it's so decentralized uh, and because these things are run by officials who often don't have a lot of technology expertise available to them, it's very difficult to get coordinated action across the whole country. And so what we've seen over the past, say, 15 years as the security of voting machines has come into focus as an issue is slow progress as more and more states and counties adopt more secure practices. But it's going to be quite a while probably before we move forward. Uh, there have been efforts to pass federal legislation in this space. Uh, there's a bill called the secure elections act, which is now, uh, uh which is now pending. Um, but things tend to move slowly. The voting machine
0: industry, which I'm reading is like a $300 million a year industry. And according to some fantastic reporting from Kim Zetter in The New York Times magazine, there's this revolving door between voting machine vendors and election officials. And I'm curious if one of the reasons why we're not seeing updates on the local level is that there may be a corruption issue.
4: I don't know if there is sort of clear corruption, but there is a sort of tight community of people who are involved in election administration, whether on the vendor side or the uh, election official side. Um, And um, I think the uh, concerns about about the cybersecurity of elections have been pretty slow to percolate into that community. Um, And and this is a thing, this is not unusual in the voting machine space. Uh, You see a lot of different industries and sectors that are slow to catch on to how serious the security problems they face could be. Um, And often, it takes someone in a sector getting burned before the sector really wakes up and um, starts to take cybersecurity more seriously. Uh, And we certainly don't want to be in a situation where someone in the voting space or election space has to get burned before uh, we take this more seriously.
1: I know one thing that uh, election security experts have been concerned about for a long time is that the software in these systems is proprietary. So you have these different private companies making the voting machines, building the software. And when researchers say, "Hey, can we see your software? And make sure it's safe. Make sure it doesn't have bugs in it," they say, "No, you can't see it." Um, is that still a problem today? And what you know has there been any progress in in getting them to open that up or or moving toward a more open source approach?
4: There have been some efforts to make open source. Uh, voting software, but the major vendors are still operating in a closed source way. Uh, and this really comes down to what are the contracts that states and counties sign when they buy systems. Uh, because the degree of freedom that they have to inspect or uh, reverse engineer or analyze the systems depends on what's in the contracts. Uh, sometimes there are terms in there that say, thou shalt not examine or do security analysis on a system. Uh, and that's obviously, in my view, not something that a public official should be signing uh, for a technology like this. Uh, there, are other, there are other situations where uh, officials insist on having more ability to inspect. And uh, many of the most useful studies of voting machine security have come about because of officials who, who, who uh, sort of put their foot down and insisted on more, uh, more freedom to have machines tested.
1: Yeah, it seems like maybe one dimension of this is a, a problem with technological literacy on the part of the representatives at the state and local levels, um, who maybe don't have the information to, needed to evaluate these systems as they're making these decisions on behalf of the public.
4: It's true. There's not, there's not a great deal of information that, uh, officials have about the, how the machines work or about the security, um. And certainly a lot of, machi- lot of decisions have been made in the past that, um, that officials might regret now. But budgets being tight, um, it's not easy to admit error and spend another pile of money on new systems. The good news in this area is that I think it's now pretty clear that the goal should not be to have systems that are that need to be bulletproof in terms of their security. The goal instead should be to have an overall system that is resilient so that if something goes wrong with the software, if it, is, if it behaves strangely, that you have something to fall back on, you have a paper ballot, you have a, a, an audit or recount capability so that whatever goes wrong, you'll be able to recover. And at the end of the process, voters will be able to have confidence that you got the result right in the end.
0: So I'm curious what's your biggest concern for the 2018 election? I mean, I feel like I hear this same conversation, you know, every 2 years, every time there is an election, we're we're talking about the security of these voting machines again. Uh, what are what are you worried about this time around for next week?
4: Well, it's the same worry that we've had in past election cycles, unfortunately. Um it's partly uh, what happens if somebody tries to manipulate the systems and change the result of the election, but As in 2016, there's probably greater concern about the possibility that someone will try to undermine confidence in the election, to try to undermine the legitimacy of the process by trying to cast doubt on the result. And that could mean just trying to cause chaos in some way, and then trying to spread rumors about misbehavior or spread conspiracy theories. Uh, the, The worst outcome that I think that I feared in 2016, and the thing that is the biggest concern in this cycle is that at the end of Election Day, we genuinely won't know who the voters wanted to put in charge um, because we don't have really a roadmap for dealing with that kind of uncertainty. The whole point of an election or the way we should think about election processes and security is that the goal is to produce convincing evidence as to what the voters wanted to do. Uh, and if we're in a situation where we don't have convincing evidence pointing in either direction, and yet it's the end of election day, and there really are not do overs in American elections, uh, then then we're in a difficult situation. Um, and uh, I think that's the thing that I would worry about the most.
0: Right. No, we've uh, we've seen similar situations turn into uh, quite chaotic ones. Professor Felton, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks. All right, we're
1: going to take one last quick break. And when we come back, we've managed to cajole our roundtable panelists, Kevin Roos and Paris Martineau, into sticking around for a special edition of Don't Close My Tabs.
0: at luckylandslots.com
2: available to players in the US excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW group void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
0: So it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Only this time we're not going to talk about what we typically talk about. We're going to talk about how to watch or not watch the election results as they come in on the internet. Uh, it's a big question. I think uh, I kind of want to start with Kevin because you're from the New York times and you guys have that infamous ticker. (laughs)
1: The (laughs) the election needle. needle? Yeah. The the needle.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. But it's, 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 you know, super reliable, I think, (laughs) or it has been, I don't know. (laughs) I'll have it open as a tab.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I think it, it, uh, I believe the word is triggering. Triggering. Okay,
0: that's it. Yeah. <laughs> because,
1: of this, because of course, of the 2016 yeah, election reliable where the not needle the right started word. out showing, oh, Hillary Clinton's going to cakewalk to the victory. And then uh, over the course of the night, the needle went dead, then
0: she started moonwalking away from the victory. <laughs> I do right? remember where I, I was. Saw someone, someone I saw a photo of
3: someone needle. in a Halloween costume the other day that was just the needle from oh, the...
2: The scariest costume of all.
3: Yeah.
0: It's scary. So are you
1: going to watch the needle and, and show solidarity with your New York Times colleagues?
3: You know, I'm going to be working on election night, so I, I, I hope that I have time to... to see anything but um yeah i'm pro i'm pro needle i'll go out on a limb um i think the needle is widely misunderstood i think um poor misunderstood needle poor misunderstood needle but you know we have an amazing team at the upshot and and they'll be doing you know live returns and i'm sure they'll be great so i'm a stick with the home team and here
0: also this crew here is probably better at knowing kind of the worst places to look for information
2: yeah, <laughs> no, around the election like i'm I, gonna yeah. be looking at my 27 tweet deck columns which right. is a terrible choice and no one else should do yeah. i shouldn't do it oh, no, I should, my... i'm going to try and dissuade myself but i know in my heart that i'm going to stare at them and see a bunch of stuff that is probably untrue probably not yet confirmed Probably too much information for the time, but... Going to do it
1: anyway. Wait, I'm really curious now. Give me a couple examples of, of your 27 tweet deck columns. I have columns. like
2: so many different lists. So, my favorite yeah, tweet like deck real column Nazis is one of
1: You'd think Twitter might have that tweet deck column, but I guess
2: not. I've oh, uh, never given it up. <laughs> yeah, no, my favorite tweet deck column is the activity column that just shows you everything that everyone you follow or, uh, or like, or have added to it, everything they like or interact with on Twitter, um, just because that's good. But then I have tweet deck columns, a million different lists, like Nazis, other people who i think is interesting to look into i have a wired uh co column i also have just a million different keywords or phrases or particular lengths at any given time that i'm watching to see if pop up um it's definitely uh very stressful i think uh, our editor-in-chief nick thompson came over to my desk the other day and i just have a large screen that has TweetDeck deck on it is the only reason why i have a second screen and he went holy tweet deck and then walked away um but don't do it it's terrible <laughs> it wastes my entire life
3: take a walk you know go vote yeah. Uh, then take a long walk in the sunshine and uh, don't and deep do it. Do. Yeah, wait yeah. till the,
2: the results will come in at some point. They'll be known. Hug um, a dog.
3: You know, like yeah. dude, <laughs> practice self care.
2: Yeah, go be outside in nature. Uh, Politico has really good
0: state by state. I'm like interested in like governors and like judges because I'm such a dork and like state ballot initiatives and stuff because I haven't. Got, I like like I like to watch like the extreme demo the pit of extreme democracy and all the states that are like voting on weird ballot measures. Politico is really good for that. Always, um, if you like niche elections <laughs> like I do, or you think it's funny or entertaining. Um, I'm gonna be looking though for misinformation. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'll be obviously like scouring the socials, and we'll we'll all be looking for that. Uh, you know if. You if you get anything you could call anyone here <laughs> at this table that you think is misleading definitely um, call me
3: first no yeah
0: call, April. <laughs> call all whoever you like the most um and uh i think yeah I don't, I don't what are you gonna be watching will
1: well one thing that i'm gonna miss is slate used to have and here i'm being the homer as well but slate used yeah. to have this thing called the instant spin room where it had um one column of conservatives on twitter like in like fairly reasonable intelligent people on both sides conservatives and liberals and you could look at that and it just it, it was such a different experience having a balanced feed between conservatives and liberals because my feed is is heavily heavily liberal um and i always found that really fascinating, because the, the conversations are just totally different. We won't have that this year, so this is a totally unhelpful recommendation.
2: <laughs> you could make two TweetDeck columns. You
1: can, <laughs> yes, then you'll then you have 29 TweetDeck columns. That'd be great. Oh um, but the, one other thing I'm going to be watching is Apple News. I'm interested in Apple News because I, I'm just so tired of covering the depressing morass that is Facebook and Twitter, and Apple is doing things in a different way, where they're employing human editors with actual journalism experience <laughs> to decide what the top stories should be, and so I'm I'm sort of following that and and rooting for it in some ways, although I'm not sure that a, a world ruled by, a journalism world ruled by Cupertino in the long run is any better than what we have. But in the short run, it's 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 encouraging because it's not full of fake news and they're pulling interesting stuff from, from real sources that do real journalism.
0: A question about that. And also I know um, one thing I do because I am in my early 30s and therefore I use Google for like spelling as well as like to check scores on things or whatever. So I'm probably just going to be like, Googling like election results, and Google will then pull in the top of its search results. Something from somewhere, and I don't know where they're going to be getting that from. Do you know where Google's going to be uh, sourcing its results? That's something we should all probably figure out.
3: The SEO lottery,
0: (laughs) I know, yeah, and so that's going to be interesting to watch too, is kind of because I know a lot of people are like me, um, and just like Google for stupid answers, and um, it's going to be
1: heavy.com five fast facts about who won the election.
2: (laughs) I think that some um elections they pull directly from um. Like the the ballot results from the specific states or counties, because there was just a security exploit found in one of the counties that yeah. allowed Google to pull it. Um, I'm forgetting yeah, what county that. it was, but none was of just us said 5:38. Yeah, <laughs> I'll probably have one of those tabs open
0: too. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. This was a really nice round table. I don't know. It was great to talk to you both. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Guys. The table is round. It is it's, a oval. Okay. it's an yeah. Oval, right. oval yeah. table. Oh, I don't know anything. Okay. <laughs> Thanks thank guys. You. All right, and that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod.
1: You can also email us at, ifthen at slate.com Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi.
0: You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. That's so much Twitter. <laughs> I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Arimus.
1: And thanks again to our guests, Kevin Roos, who you can find on Twitter at Kevin Roos. That's Kevin, R-O-O-S-E. And Paris Martineau, who is on Twitter at, you guessed it, Paris Martineau. That's Paris, M-A-R-T-I-N-E-A-U.
0: And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We appreciate you doing so. And if you haven't done so, go ahead and try. It's a super nice thing to do, and we would appreciate it if you did.
1: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs.
0: We'll see y'all next week. And more than anything, if you voted, great. If you didn't vote, I'm sure you have a good reason not to. And good luck out there.